Note. This is a true crime story. Character dialogues are direct quotations. In an effort to accurately represent sources, some cited opinions are depictions of a past social sentiment and do not represent the beliefs of the content creator. In addition, this contains violent and dark subject matter. Listener discretion advised. Twenty policemen, detectives, and deputy sheriffs are scouring the Southern Pacific and Santa Fe Railroad yards and watching all outgoing trains in pursuit of Ben Elliott, the tropical youth who is now the most generally suspected person in connection with the killing of Annie Polterra. The trail of young Elliot in Los Angeles is warm. Welcome, dear listener, to LA 1909, a true crime podcast uncovering a city's history through a murder mystery. The case is that of a young girl, a working-class immigrant's daughter, found murdered, an all-American LA sheriff, and a parade of suspects. A Los Angeles homicide investigation will be reconstructed using early 20th century records and newspaper articles. This episode, an 18-year-old transplant becomes the focus of the Polterra murder investigation. But before the detectives can question the rookie thief, they'll have to find him and catch him. Episode 4, He Gambled Round. Ladies and gentlemen. Before the discovery of Anna's body, and parallel to her case, Los Angeles detectives were investigating a series of burglaries in the Tropico and Glendale neighborhoods, just east of Griffith Park. And it wouldn't take long for these burglaries to merge paths with the Polterra murder. In the weeks immediately preceding the murder, the Tropico Mercantile Company, located at the corner of today's Los Feliz Boulevard and Central Avenue, was broken into on five separate occasions. The store was primarily a grocery, but also sold other goods and notions. In the first incident, the offender took only some food and a few items of little value. The most interesting of these trinkets was a set of knives. Over the next few weeks, the thief continued this trend, breaking into the mercantile at night mostly pilfering food, crackers, and cookies, and pocketing any leftover cash. Once, the sneak managed to make off with a sleek silver revolver. There were five robberies committed at the Tropico Mercantile Company store. A total of $26 was taken. The burglaries were timed for paydays at the Western Art Tile Works. On these days, the company carried large sums of money, for cashing the employees' checks. Then, there was an attempted intrusion at the Western Art Tile Works. The security officer foiled the effort and gave chase to the culprit. Upon reaching the Tropico Bridge, however, the suspect seemed to disappear. But the guard saw of the figure matched the description of the mercantile thief. After the fifth burglary at the mercantile store, the officers learned how the entrance was being made. 
Several bricks had been taken out of the foundation which faced a short areaway between two buildings. The thief then crawled under the structure and entered the store by going through a trap door under the show window. Case leaders anticipate a future attempt at the grocery and devise a plan. A few watchmen surreptitiously take post inside the shop, hoping to catch the perpetrator in the act. A few hours go by. Suddenly, one of the watchmen, assuming the burglar is making an attempt beneath the store, dashes out the entrance. There, directly in front of the grocery, the thief stands, red-handed. But the officer is unprepared, and as quickly as the two see each other, the dark is illuminated by an exchange of gunfire. The guard peers from his cover and sees the man, the boy, dashing away. He gives chase and pursues the suspect all the way to the tropical bridge. But once again, as the officer approaches the overpass, the boy is nowhere to be found. The belief of the officials is that he went to one of the camps which were unearthed in the search for the murderer of the schoolgirl. After the incident, the watchman gives a description of the boy and confirms it matches that of the known suspect. On Sunday, May 16th, the same night as the attempt on Western Art Tile Works and the night before Anna's murder, back-to-back burglaries occurred at Glendale Hardware and Noble Brothers Dry Goods. At Noble Brothers, several helpings of groceries, dry goods, and a pair of blankets had been lifted. While just a few blocks away, four boxes of 32 caliber shells and a Deerfoot hunting knife were stolen from the Glendale Hardware Company store. A revolver had been stolen from a mercantile store, which these cartridges would fit. These items would be the first major clues connecting the perpetrator of the series of thefts to the vicinity of Anna Polterra's murder, and they were crackers and blankets. At a campsite in Forest Lawn Cemetery, unearthed after the murder, Two blankets, positively identified as those stolen from the Noble Dry Goods store, were found lying in the dirt, along with discarded cracker boxes, coffee cans, and other containers, all traceable to the burgled Glendale stores. Though Forest Lawn was all the way across the L.A. River from Griffith Park, detectives highly suspect that this campsite, as well as the counterfeiters' camp, and Yegman Rendezvous, each found within less than a couple hundred feet of the crime scene, were all occupied by the same assailant, the same boy committing the series of commercial and residential burglaries. To many lead investigators, this young man was now the number one person of interest in the Polterra killing. The case against the Mexican tramp, who was witnessed near the vent house the afternoon of the murder, had been weakened further when a report came in that the day of the slaying, the tramp was spotted two miles north of the crime scene, continuing down the road away from the site, 40 minutes after he had initially been observed. In that time, it seems impossible for him to have waited while the girl ate, killed her, and walked two miles. The autopsy on the girl's body proved that a short time before she was murdered, 
she had partaken of a meal of mushy food, such as tamales. In the camp, near where the body was discovered, were found many tamale husks. The thief disappeared twice in the direction of this camp. Possibly, she was invited to the camp and was too innocent to suspect them of wrongdoing. The officers say the wound in her throat might have been inflicted with such a knife as was stolen. Fortunately for investigators, they already have a suspect in their sights. The officers are anxious to find Ben Elliott, 18 years old. He is thought to be responsible for a number of burglaries committed in Tropico and Glendale during the past winter and spring. He is alleged to be a person of degenerate type. His description is nationality, American, age, 18, height, 5 feet, 7 inches, weight, 130 to 133 pounds, hair, light brown, complexion, fair, clothes, not known, face, smooth, eyes, hazel, features, sharp, educated in military school, nervous, jerky walk. There is strong suspicion that Elliot was in the vicinity of Griffith Park about the time the murder was committed, since he was charged with the small tropical burglaries some weeks ago. He fled his usual haunts. His capture might throw a new light on the murder of the little girl. Ben Elliot was born and raised in Bangor, South Dakota. But just before the winter of 1909, he resided with his father in Lemoore, North Dakota. That January, his father, B.F. Elliot, sent him to California to stay with a family friend, E.A. Bennett. Mr. Bennett was, at the time, a stakeholder in the Tropico Mercantile Company. He soon unloaded his interest in the business and warned the young Elliot he planned to take his family and move north. Around then, the youth started slipping out for a few days at a time, with no word. Upon his return, he'd make many excuses, but none of them were believable. When the time had come for the Bennett's departure, they explained it had been arranged for Elliot to stay with the new family. Ben agreed to move in with the new folks, but once the Bennetts had left town, the boy went back on his word and began his life of local vagrancy. B.F. Elliot arrived in Los Angeles to assist in the search for his son and was greatly affected when he learned that the boy was mentioned in connection with the murder. He is a wild young man, an only son who was too well treated to appreciate the value of a home. What else he may have done, I do not believe him guilty of such a horrible murder. Ben's father was a well-to-do business pioneer, founding and heading the Lamore County Land and Tile Company. He was the abstracting pioneer in the county, well known for his quality and honesty. He also worked in farmland real estate. The Lamore Realty and Insurance Firm the Elliott Holbert Company, bearing the family name. Neither the father of Ben Elliott, nor the friends which the youth made while here, believe there is anything in the report that he may have had a hand in the murder of the Polterra girl. There is nothing in the boy's life that would lead them to believe such a thing. Never in his life, they assert, has he shown signs of being vicious.
Before the murder, officers had staked out the Bennett house where Ben had stayed. Eventually, they spotted the young Elliot place a ladder to an unlocked second-story window, enter the unoccupied home, then soon after, exit, and quickly disappear. Upon investigating the residence, the men discovered empty tins and broken cracker boxes, again identified as stolen. After the Monday of the murder, there were no additional sightings of Elliot by any officers. However, citizens around the greater Los Angeles area would report seeing the youth. Two days after Anna's murder, between 3 and 4 o'clock, Teamster Z. Rosa, while hauling supplies to San Francisco Canyon, came across a young man on the San Fernando Road. The boy I met appeared to have no shirt on. His coat was buttoned up close to his neck and he wore a handkerchief under his chin to take place of a collar. The boy was badly scared about something. He kept looking back over his shoulder as if in fear that someone was pursuing him. His voice trembled as he spoke to me and he stuck close to my wagon for about an hour. He cut across the field from the railroad where he had been walking to the wagon road and came alongside me with the evident intention of asking for a ride. I was loaded to the limit, however. I had no place on the wagon. This boy was about 18 years old, medium-sized and of light complexion. He said he had been out here in Southern California for a little while and that he had came from South Dakota. He did not tell me his name and I did not ask it. When I told him that I was on my way to the aqueduct, he asked me if there was any chance for a young fellow to get a job there. I told him, well, there's always a chance, but that if he had any place in Los Angeles where he could get three meals a day, he had better not go to the aqueduct. He seemed to assent to that suggestion for me and turned back. I am positive he did not go toward the aqueduct because I camped that night close to the road and my dog was on watch all night. The boy could not have passed along the road without attracting my attention. When I made a camp that evening, I cooked enough supper for two because I thought the kid might come along, but he did not show up again. And I'm confident he turned back toward the city. Then, just before noon in downtown Los Angeles, the driver of a fruit wagon, well acquainted with Elliot, witnessed a young man walking south on Alameda Street near First. The driver pulled up close, and the boy quickly turned to approach the door of a house. After passing, the man peered back and saw the boy exit the front yard, apparently receiving no response from the bell. Officers expressed surprise that Elliot would allow himself to be seen in Los Angeles. It is argued that the man who claims to have identified Elliot must have been mistaken. But then, on May 22nd and 23rd, two burglary attempts were thwarted at J.W. Dutton's home in Tropico. It is supposed by many that this person is the same one who has been operating in the district for the past month. In the first incident, the prowler was intercepted by Dutton's son and chased off with three gunshots. The very next evening, Mr. Dutton arrived home with his two sons and a friend, Mr. Jones. Hearing a noise in the back, they discover an intruder hiding in the home. The burglar raced out the door, but not before Mr. Jones drew his revolver and again fired three times at the shadow, 
to no avail. A tropical woman had seen Elliot yesterday at Santa Monica, but did not get near enough to speak to him. This clue will be investigated by the authorities. At the Redondo Beach port, 30 miles southwest of Griffith Park, Deputy Collector of Customs, Shedrick, is out on a small launch boat with fisherman J.W. Thaxter when they come across a lonely rowboat adrift six miles from shore. As they overtake the vessel, they spy a young man, sun-kissed and seasick, reeling on the floor of the skiff. Shedrick leans over, rousing the boy, and asks him what he's doing in the boat. The boy responds, he's just taking a little ride, as he has nothing else to do. He says he's from Milwaukee, and he's been around Redondo Beach only two or three days. He would have brought back the rowboat earlier if he had not been seasick. He seems to Shedrick to be a weak-minded boy. Since the boy insists he intended to return the boat, the men offer the youth a tow to shore. Satisfied with the boy, Shedrick releases him. However, one thought lingers in the deputy's head. If the young man intended to return the boat, why was it filled with camping gear? A short time later, the very same boy would be found on the shore of a fisherman's camp a few miles south of Redondo, still with the stolen skiff, and still seasick. Vacationing LAPD patrolman O.L. Gilpin is camping on the beach about two miles south of Redondo. As he was fishing, he noticed a boat being tossed by the waves upon the beach. A boy rolled out of it. The officer made an investigation he saw that the boy was seasick, but did not like the answers he gave to questions. The officer at the time did not know his prisoner's identity. The camp outfit with which the young fellow was surrounded aroused the suspicion of Gilpin, and he questioned the boy for some time. Sensing the boy was up to no good, off-duty officer Gilpin orders the boy back into his boat and rows him up the coast. At the Redondo Police Station, the juvenile is given into custody of Marshal Lee Stanchfield. Stanchfield had been awaiting the boy's arrival, since he had heard his description and the fact that the juvenile had stolen a rowboat. When the marshal inquires about the young man's identity, he gives the name Russell S. Stevens. The officer asks which way he spells Stevens. The boy hesitates. This confirms Stanchfield's suspicions. He presses the delinquent for a real name, but the boy refuses to admit his identity. The marshal phones Los Angeles. At nine o'clock, Deputy Sheriff Wright, accompanied by P.H. Davis, manager of the Tropical Mercantile Store, which had been burglarized on several occasions, went to Redondo. When confronted by Davis, he acknowledged his identity. The boy was the much-missing Ben Elliott, for whom a furious search has been in progress. Next time on L.A. 1909. I was afraid that they might kill me if I came back here, so I took this boat and started out to sea. Did you hear about the killing of a little girl? 
over in Griffith Park. I read about it, yes, sir. Have you ever been in that vicinity? Oh, two or three times. No, he answered questions about murders and burglaries. He seemed more interested on the sheriff's promise to give him a good beef stick. LA 1909 is an independent podcast written, directed, performed, and produced by John E. Marino. To support the podcast, please follow the link in the show notes. It also helps to comment, rate, and subscribe wherever you are listening. And follow our Instagram at Los Angeles Mysteries. Music, courtesy of Project Gutenberg Audio. Piano rolls by Scott Joplin and Claude Debussy. Other music performed by John E. Marino.